According to Matthew chapter number 19. Matthew chapter number 19, please. Matthew chapter 19. I appreciate you being here this morning and I appreciate your faithfulness to the entire work of the church and ministry. And uh, this morning we come to the, the fourth in the series of messages on accept the Lord, build a house. In this case, build a home. And uh, I hope that your home has been made better by having been here in the services this month. In the month of June, we'll carry it over to some degree, but not quite to the intensity that we have. But uh, it doesn't belittle or does it uh, lighten our interest in your home. We want it to be right, so let me say to you, we want to help you and be a blessing to you and your home and help your home to be all it ought to be. I think that in our country, our churches, it will be imperative that we as church people have solid families if there is any hope for our country. And I'm not certain there is any hope for the big picture of our country, but if there is any hope at all, it will come from our families that are Bible-believing, Christ-loving, and Christ-adoring people. So let me urge you and exhort you to make your home a Christ-like home. This morning in Matthew chapter 19, we enter into one of the most difficult subjects that I guess any time in the ministry a pastor enters into. And um, it's not ours to take the, the low road or the easy road. It's ours to take the road of Scripture. And uh, so today, uh, let me say it in, after weeks and weeks from the very beginning, knowing that I would somewhere along the way preach this message, uh, I have prayed and sought the Lord's face and studied much. So whatever else I have said in the past about what I said I believed, this is the capstone of what I believe about the subject matter of today. Uh, there are some things that I have ironed out, some questions I have that I've resolved, uh, some doubts I have that I have taken care of in this subject matter. And what I say today is from the heart of my soul as I understand the Scriptures. I understand that we have liberty in Christ. If you know Him as Savior, you have liberty in Him. And therefore... You and I are no different in that uh, I'm not a greater man than the men of this audience or no greater man than the ladies are great in this audience. You have every right to differ with my interpretation of Scripture. Uh, I submit to you, therefore, if you differ, that uh, you pray about it as long as I have prayed about it before you come and discuss it with me. I have taken over a month to pray about the message, and, and I think it would be fair that you pray for a month before you come and challenge it. So if you will do the same as I did, and I would not only urge you to pray about it because I believe the scriptures would be studied and, and, and meditated on. So if you differ, please pray about it for a month and study it as best you can for four weeks and then come back and let's talk about it. But otherwise, I commit myself to teach you and to share with you this morning what God has given me and what I believe is true, in fact, absolute truth. First off, in Matthew chapter number 19, verses 1 through 12, we read them carefully. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, It is lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause. He answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore 
God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which may made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. The fact of the passage that's before us here takes us to the fourth point of the message we started out, talking about the formation, the foundation. And this particular part is talking about the fracture of the home. The home's being fractured, and, and I don't have to stand up here and give you statistics. You're probably sick to death of statistics that you hear on the evening news of how many divorces take place all the time. Every time you turn around, it seems like the increase in divorce rate is skyrocketing. It's just going wild, the number of things that are taking place to set up the stage for more and more divorces. It's been a long time since I read it, but in a, a magazine years and years ago, there was a, a smart article. And in that article, it, it advertised a jewelry. And in that jewelry article, it simply listed at the bottom of the um, page, the advertisement, certain services that this jewelry provided. One of them was they rented wedding rings. Realizing that folks weren't going to keep them long, they just rented them. And in the bottom of the article, in the, in the advertisement, right across the bottom, it said, we rent wedding rings. Now, I, I think that could only be said of something in America. It was uh, not all that long ago in an uh, article in the Indianapolis Star, there was a small, I guess they call them fillers, it was about two and a half inches in length as far as a column. And in that column, it listed on a particular weekend in a western city that they were going to have three sessions of divorce courts where they would be divorcing over 500 people in a three-hour period. Group divorces. And an article that would just appear two weeks ago in a small magazine that related to family of all things, it indicated that this business of a no-fault divorce has increased divorce in this country almost a thousand-fold. People who openly said, you know, if we had not made it so easy, I'd have never done it. May I say to you that the easy divorce in America is a curse and a scourge of our land. The fact of the matter is that there is no way in the world that God in His wisdom had any desire for that to be the process. It has become such a plague it's like that which has been let loose out of the domain of the damned and is simply gobbling up homes and families and relationships and children and scarring families for four generations yet to come. I'm just simply telling you that the Bible is simply a ghost parallel to what our, our society is already telling us. And God in His wisdom knew this far and away beyond all this happening. And God in His Word set forth some safeguards, some directives, some principles. Let me share three of those with you, I believe, today, and three truths or three points that I think you need to take to heart. And I know what I'm going to tell you this morning is radical. I know that. I just believe it's time for some radical positioning. I believe it's time to look at the Scriptures honestly and say, if it's radical, we'll take a radical position. But let's quit fooling ourselves into going along with just what society wants us to go along with just to get along Let's be honest with what God says and take it on the chin if need be, but be right. 
And that's what I ask you to do this morning. First off, let me call your attention to what I simply call the original principle. Look at Matthew chapter 19 and look at the verses listed in verses 4 through 6. This is the original principle. In, the, in Matthew 19, 4, he says, And he answered and said unto them, because they had just asked the question, Is it lawful, verse 3, for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Is it, is it right, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for every cause? That's in verse number 3. Verse 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. First off, that eliminates homosexual marriages right off the bat. So there's no discussion and no debate and nothing about lesbians marrying lesbians and homosexuals marrying homosexuals. He, he eliminates that in just one swipe of the pen in verses number 4 and 5. And then verse number 6, Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. First off, this is a quote from Genesis chapter 2. You're, you're familiar with that. Genesis chapter 2, the passage goes on and on concerning God's will for man and his bringing to Adam a helpmate and all that. That's entered into it. Let me just remind you of the original principle. First of all, it's listed here, and we'll use three words to identify it. Number one, it lists here the ideal of leaving, L-E-A-V-I-N-G. First off, understanding verse number five, when he uses this terminology, he's saying there comes a time when a young man, a young woman is to leave their parents in order to establish a new relationship and a new home, and God's saying, that's my plan, that's the way I want it done. Now listen and listen carefully. Far too many divorces come about because of violation of the leaving principle. They never leave home. They either go to another place, but they keep the hotline going back and forth, back home, and keep getting advice from there, where in fact, when God ordained a home, he, you should have never gotten married if you could not make your decisions on your own. That's the first thing. And young people, don't get married until you can solve your own problems in the Lord. If you can't work out conflict and you can't sit down and see you've got a problem and say, hey, we can work this thing out, we'll deal with it, we'll do what's right. If you're not mature enough to do that, then you're not mature enough to get married. Because there should not be this constant path running back into where you came from. The leaving process is a cutting loose. It is saying, you left home, you left mom and dad, and now you're saying, I'm willing, I'm ready, I'm mature, I'm in the Lord enough, mature-wise, I can take this responsibility and I can grapple with it, I can deal with it, and I can lead my family, and, and I can be the wife in this home, and I can be the mother, and I can be the husband, I can be the father. I can do what I need to do to make sure that my home brings honor and glory to the Lord and fulfillment to all those who participate. And so that's the leaving process, that's the leaving principle. It's set forth very clearly in the Word of God, and it's... So-called in-law problems are just a violation of the biblical principle of the leaving principle. If you don't leave, you'll have problems. Simple and sweet. And if you keep going back and getting and going back and getting and going back and getting, it'll create problems. Just bank on it. You can mark it down. God literally writes it out and says, I guarantee you, if you don't do the leaving, there'll be another leaving down the road that'll have to do with divorcing. You can bank on it. And may I say to parents, just as surely as our young people, when they grow up and mature and get to that point, they choose a mate and they leave home, as surely as the child leaves home, we in-laws have to leave our children alone. We in-laws have no business interfering in their behalf concerning their conflicts and their problems. Now, if they come and say, hey, here's a situation we'd like for you some input on this, and so that's one thing. 
But for you just to call up and say, look, I've been watching you. Boy, you've been blowing this royal. Let me tell you how to do this. Let me tell you how to do this. Let me just put some things in your ears. Let me tell you, see, when they leave, they've left. And you need to accept that. So the first thing is the leaving process and the leaving principle. And may I say, a lot of divorces come about because of this violation of this particular principle. Number two, in verse number five, is the cleaving process or the cleaving principle. The word there, as Brother Sam Harmon mentioned, really relates to the word of glue, adhering to, something that really bonds to. That's the word it comes from. And that's really what it means in this context. And in meaning concerning marriage, it means a lot of things, but probably the simplest and most practical to you and my, me is, is after you've done the leaving, then literally you're to do the cleaving, which is really you're to be together with your wife, your mate. It is the ideal of you bonding to that person who now for the rest of your life will be the most important person in all of your existence outside the Lord and the Lord Christ. None other, no one other than that person is to be the closer to you. Nobody, nobody. And herein lies a problem. Sometimes when children come into a home and, and if, a, if a mate does not give the proper attention to this other mate, then sometimes the child's in the middle, very often attention gets focused on that third party and this relationship begins to pull apart. I remind you again of the case in point where the young lady is up for murder right now because her husband would not give her the attention and so she sets a fire in her home allegedly and is going to and kill this child so her husband would pay attention to her. Now let me tell you, that's not a strange story. That's very real and it happens all the time. It's happened in counseling in that very room. Men come in and say, well, it's just, all she sees is this child and she can't see anything but this child and she doesn't meet my needs. You know? It's just this child. It's just... And the lady who has the child, let me say this, often what the lady will do when her husband doesn't treat her the way he should, that's where she finds her joy. So wouldn't you expect it? Sure you would. So it's a big circle. It's got a big problem and it's not an easy answer. But let me tell you something, it should be settled within the framework of that home life. It should be settled under that roof with all those constituents. And so this business of cleaving is important. By the way, let me tell you, marriage is not just to legalize lust and to legalize sex and to, to get you a cook or to get you a tennis opponent. Let me tell you something. Marriage, marriage is to be other person's sinner. And if you're not ready to center your life in another person, then you have no business getting married. You have no business. Because it's a commitment to that other person and to be to that other person what you thought everybody else was going to be to you. You know, you wanted everybody to sort of circle around your globe and now all of a sudden you've got to circle around some other folks' globe. Let me tell you something. Marriage, if it's going to be successful, has to be other person-centered. Now, go to the third word and it's in verse number 5. And it says, in, in, excuse me, verse number 6. It is simply to say that Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. You can write in this word and make them rhyme with the other alliterated leaving, cleaving, and then weaving. The ideal of being woven together. A true marriage, and, and I believe this with all my heart, is where each person in the relationship is fulfilled as a partner. And for that to happen, it means two people whose personalities, bodies, emotions, Intellect, likes, dislikes, etc., etc., all these things, even I think to some degree, even spirit, are so woven into one that they become, two people become one. They begin to even think alike and they even begin to sound alike. Um, I know in our home, I came from the South, and um, English was not a favorite subject of mine. When I married Judy, English is Judy's favorite subject. And uh, 
I would go to Judy and say things, and, and Judy would have to explain to me. If you, you know, when I'd say to her, I, I said, this didn't sound right. And she's, no, and, and here's, how, here's what is right. Here's how you said it. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. I went to school, and I went through English, but I must not heard that. I must have been asleep when Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Haston was talking that in school, you know. And then I would come across another rule of grammar, and she said, no, here's what the rule says. And she'd say, I, I never heard it explained like that before. I thought it was, oh, no, that's not it. I, I thought you said Illinois until I met Judy, and she said, no, it's Illinois. I, I thought you raised kids until I met Judy and said, Judy said, no, 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 no that's, not, that's incorrect, it's reared. You rear children, you raise animals. I said, are you serious? <laughs> and I deeply appreciated the kind time my wife took with me to teach and help me to talk right. I mean, of all the people in the world who ought to talk right, it ought to be a preacher, huh? And I, and I deeply appreciate the time. My wife, you know, she could have gotten said, hey, this is unbelievable. I can't deal with this. She could have just given up. But no, uh, in our asking and my saying, what did I say? How did I say that? Or is that said right? Is that said wrong? The gracious attention my wife gives to my speech. And then I caught myself being able to say things and express myself better than I had ever before been able to do. I owe that to my wife. And you know, that's a part of that process where it comes that where you actually become so much woven into that you almost think the way she I think the way she does about speech now I can tell you when I've said a bad thing boy I don't I mean not look at I just know it it just bingo and, and I know it now because I begin to think like she does to a large degree I'm simply saying this verse of scripture says that all three of these are involved the leaving process that cleaving process and that weaving process now when those all take place the Lord's original plan has been fulfilled we have a marriage. We have a union. And then now think about that when you come to chapter number 19 and verse number 6 when he says, Wherefore they are no more twain now, they are one flesh, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Well, isn't that very clear? I mean, after we've gone through all this business of leaving, after we've gone through this business of cleaving, and after we've gone through this process of weaving, and after all this has been put together, glued, sealed, signed, bound, and taped, and, and chained, all that together, and then he says, leave it alone. Isn't that sweet? Just leave it alone. Don't pull it apart. Don't be yanking on it, and don't be jerking it around. You leave it alone. That's what he said. That's what the verse says. It says, let no man put asunder. Just makes good sense. If God's going to take all the time to do this business of teaching you about leaving, teaching you about cleaving, and then teaching you about weaving, it makes no sense at all if somewhere down the road one guy walks up in a courtroom, sounds a gavel and says, all the leaving's over, all the cleaving's over, and all the weaving's over, you're divorced. Isn't that absurd? That's the most absurd thing I ever heard in all of my existence. God says absolutely not. What I put together and what I work so feverishly in and what I was meticulous designed to make, you leave it alone. Don't you touch it. And if it wasn't enough, he emphasizes again his ideals. Over in Romans chapter 7, Paul wrote it under inspiration, chapter 7, verse 1. He says, No, you're not, brethren. For I speak to them that know the law, that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Verse number two. For the woman who hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband is dead, then she is loosed from the law of her husband. 
Verse number three, so then if while her husband liveth, she is married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is freed from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Paul wrote it again, that part of the principle. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse number 39. He says, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband is dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. I'm simply saying the original principle was when you got married, you got married. You left, you cleaved, you weaved, and that's the way it stays. Period. Now let me show you a second thing. There's not only the original principle, but I want you to see the ongoing problem. Look at Matthew chapter number 19. Look at verses 7 and 8. Matthew chapter 19, verse number 7. The Bible says, They say unto him then, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, put away her, or put her away? Verse 8, He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And you need to see the collation between verse number 7, the word command. They use the word. Why did Moses then command? The Lord Jesus Christ changes the word in verse number 8. And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you. He did not command you. They said command. The Lord Jesus, when he explains, says, no, he didn't command you to get a divorce. He suffered you to get a divorce. Why did he suffer us then? Because of the hardness of your heart. For what? Because of the sinfulness of your hearts he allowed that. So consequently, God made no provision whatsoever for divorce in the Bible. None. There's no place in the scripture where the Lord said from heaven, Okay, I've made this wonderful plan about marriage, but I've got to think about this thing. This thing's warped. We're going to pull that out and we're going to declare that divorce is a legal option. That's the way it is from here on in. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. What God started out from the beginning, God stuck with. And by the way, He had to because He cannot change. His word is forever settled. Once He started out with the original principle in Genesis chapter 2, God had committed Himself to be faithful. He could not change. He could not go back and say, Oh, well, what have we done? We've made a boo-boo because now these marriages where they fight like cats and dogs are, uh, what are we going to do? We're going to have to make some kind of side door to this thing. And so we've got to make a divorce. That's not what God did. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible where God said we'll have a process called divorce. You won't find one. Let me show you further. Sin is the obvious problem and the culprit behind all this. And... and or as we call it, we call it the lone reason. Sin is the lone reason for all divorces. And uh, let me tell you this. It may make lawyers rich. It may make counselors wealthy. It may make uh, uh, courts busy. And it may make pastors sad. And it may even make marriage like it never happened. But it'll never be right. It'll never be right. Let me show you something in the Bible. Look at Ephesians chapter number 5, that famous passage concerning Christ in the church, concerning the believer. Ephesians chapter 5, and you need to see this very carefully. Ephesians chapter 5, and look at verse number 22. Ephesians 5, 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it 
with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Have you noticed the number of times that he compares this relationship to the church and his relationship to it? About he gave his life for it, he loved it, all the things of the relationship. The whole passage is just a mirroring of the great blessing, if you please, of the individual believer in Christ. Our relationship with Christ as we are a part of the church. Not the local church, but the church of Jesus Christ. That, that body of believers. That's what he's talking about. And he says, this relationship between a man and his wife is an exacting pattern of that relationship. And all through this text, he just mingles and mangles that truth. You can't get away. You can't take out one of those truths without affecting the other negatively. And he goes further. Verse number 25. No man ever yet hated his flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning what? Husband and wives? No. Christ and the church. Now let me tell you something, what all that says, and this is a backdoor way in, but it's an absolute fact. You know what that passage really verifies? The permanency, the indissolvable relationship between Christ and His church. That's what it says. Then when you add the dimension of it also talking about marriage, you just know what you just added? The permanency of marriage. If relationship of a man and his wife is like Christ and the church, there's one thing about Christ and the church relationship that is absolutely exciting. You can't break it. All you have to do is turn to Romans chapter 8 and read the latter part of the chapter. It says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And you just go through a vast list. Nothing can do it. Nothing can do it. I'm just, it's indissolvable. This relationship shall forever remain sacred. And that's what he meant for a family called marriage. It shall forever remain sacred. You know that the Old Testament concludes. Look at Malachi chapter 2. It concludes with this issue. Malachi chapter 2. As if the Lord in His great wisdom knew that as you enter into the New Testament era, there was going to be a problem about this matter of uh, divorce. The Lord addresses it as He closes Malachi chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 13. It says, And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with good at your hand. Most translations have it that these people came in and wept so much over the altar that they put the fire out underneath the thing. Now, you talk about some weeping. That's some weeping. Notice verse number 14. Yet ye say, Wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant, Verse 15, And did not he make one, yet had he the residue of the Spirit? And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed of your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of thy youth. And what he's saying through all that is that the marriage relationship that they'd had early on, they canceled it out. They divorced. And when they came in here, he is upset. The Lord is upset with them. They're asking the question, why? And God is saying, because you did exactly what I did not want you to do. You went out and separated yourself from the spouse of your youth. The youth with which you made your covenant, your commitment. And you dissolved that now. And then you come in here, and their hearts were broken now. They knew God was upset. And as if 
He needed to. Look at verse number 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith, He hateth putting away. Translated to you many of your Bibles, God hates divorce. Now you can't get any clearer than that. I mean, there's a lot of things in the Bible you may have to have some interpretation on, but you don't have to have any interpretation on that. God hates divorce. That makes sense. Malachi had to face the divorce issue. Jesus had to face the divorce issue. You and I will have to face the divorce issue. So you'll need to seek the mind of God and the Word of God. But don't allow society to interpret Scripture for you. You make sure you interpret it in the quietness of your own quiet, serene place so that you don't have all these, well, what if I do this, if this, we do this, we do that, if I'd done this, if I do this. Let me just say to you what God says. Now, I read something this week. I think it's worth sharing with you. It's rather lengthy, I guess it is. It's got ten statements. These are all by Christian people. There was a group of Christian people got together who are all divorced. All the Christians in this group were divorced. And that's happening too often. Far too often. And so they asked them some questions. The basic question which I want to answer and let you hear what their answers were was this one. Seeing is how then that God hates divorce, why does God hate divorce from your perspective? And that is from your experience in this divorce, why does God hate divorce? Now you listen carefully to their answers, not mine. Not Bible answers. These are their heart-wrenching answers. Number one, because it's never really over. I've heard that before. You never really get away from it. There's always that other person. Number two, it just devastated my family. I understand. Number three, it makes people wonder if being a Christian makes any difference whatsoever about your life. They said that. I didn't say that. Number four, it produces so much pain, damage to people involved. It does anything but demonstrate God's glory to a lost world. Number five, it breaks up families literally for generations to come. As our children vowed never to get married, fearing their own divorce. Six, children of divorce are denied the normal childhood that they have a right to. Number seven, it leaves family members in a state of insecurity and confusion about relationships. Number eight, rearing children separately is just not the way God intended it to do. Number nine, the children's loyalties are torn between the two people they love the very most in this world. And number ten, God designed the family as a unit. Anything less than that just will not work. Now, I didn't get those answers. Those are the answers they gave when they were asked on a questionnaire. And I say to you, no wonder God hates divorce, huh? I mean, so much pain and so much heartache and so many... Uh, you know, nothing has created such naughty problems for church as divorce has. And let me say it and say it carefully and kindly. But we should have never had to deal with it if proper biblical explanation and exposition had been given, we would have not had to do so. Let me point out two or three of those things in the few moments I have left. First off, back to Malachi, uh, Matthew chapter number 19. Matthew chapter 19, look at verse number 9. Matthew 19, 
verse number 9, the Bible says, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. The always the question I get is, Pastor, what about the exception clause? This one in Matthew chapter 19. First off, let me tell you, there are many exception clauses in the Bible. Uh, in fact, here's just a few. First off, there's one in Matthew 18, 3. It says, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Luke 13, 3 has one. It says, I tell you, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. John 3, 3 has one. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in John 6, 44, No man comes to me except the Father who hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, those are all exception clauses, but none of them deal with a divorce. Just this one in Matthew chapter number 9 now, 19 and verse number 9 deals with the exception concerning divorce. Now, now I want you to understand where I'm coming from, and I want you to understand what I'm saying, so please listen with both ears and your heart. First off, Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. That's important that you know. That's important that you know because there are other parts of the Bible that are written to Gentile audiences primarily, and he says things differently. How so? Let me show you. Look at Mark chapter number 10. Mark chapter number 10. Mark chapter number 10, and look, if you would, at verse number 9. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 9. Most people who are going to defend divorce never, ever go to Mark chapter 10, verse 9. Never go there. They go to a Jewish passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse number 9, and they'll fly from Mark chapter number 10, verse number 9. They wouldn't touch this area with a 10-foot pole. You know Why? It says flat out something they don't want to hear. Verse number 9 says, What therefore God hath joined together, this is Mark 10, 9, to join together, let not man put asunder, and in the house his disciples ask him again of the same matter. Verse number 11, And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her, and if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. You say, wait a minute, the disciples were somewhat Jewish. Yes, but the audiences around whom, to whom he was speaking and explaining his question asked were not. They were Gentile people. He was saying literally, there is nothing among these people that is absolutely endorsing or encouraging that divorce is a viable alternative. It is not. It is not a choice. It is not something that we look at. You can go through the Bible and look through every passage that deals with divorce, and that would be a passage in Mark, in Luke, in Romans, and in Corinthians, which are almost always pushed toward a Gentile audience, and there is not one single exception clause listed. When you go to the Jewish passage, Matthew 9 or 19.9, you'll find an exception. Let me say and explain that to you. You should know by now, as old as you are, and as much as you've heard the Christmas story, that when, uh, when the Bible talks about the Jewish culture of marriage, they had what was called a betrothal practice. A young man would grow up and he'd see a young lady in his uh, community and, and he'd go to his mom and his dad and he'd say, you see that girl over there? I, I want to marry that young lady. Parents say, okay, that'll be fine. Mom and dad here would go to see mom and dad there. They would sit down and they would talk about this relationship. And after the interviews were done and... You can call them anything you want to do it, but uh, historically they called them uh, in, uh, in incepts or something of that nature where they actually uh, exchanged information, and we call them interviews. That's exactly what they were. And they interviewed one another. See, if this man wanted his daughter marrying this man's son, and, and they talked back and forth, and after they came to a conclusion, yes, I will give my daughter to you so your son can marry her, then they, they have a set date. 
They'd go down to a certain location. Sometimes it was the entrance to the synagogue. And in that synagogue, they had a document and they had money. And in that simple ceremony, they were declared betrothed. They signed the documents, they handed over the money, and they were betrothed. From that moment on, they were married for all practical purposes. But there was one catch to it. When mom and dad or the girl got ready to go home, they took the girl in hand and went home. When the mom and dad or the boy got ready to go home, they took the boy in hand and they went home. They stayed apart for at least one year. One year at least. Historically, some said as much as a year and nine months, but at least one year. None I ever found and no record have I found that they stayed together less than that. It was always a year or more they were apart. But you say, what in the world they do for that year? Well, for that whole year. Yes, they could see each other, but they could have absolutely, absolutely no sexual contact. They were married in a sense of betrothal, but they were not consummated marriages. And so consequently, the whole idea was that you go back and for a year, you let your parents teach you the responsibility of what it's going to be like to be married. You go back and you plan your wedding, the big wedding that you're going to have at the end of this period. You go back and you plan that thing to the hilt and you make sure everything is ex exactly the way you want it. But you are not to have any sexual contact. Now you must understand, that's why in the Jewish culture there is such a big difference between the word fornication and adultery. It bears out through the whole of Scripture. First off, you need to understand that to the Jewish mind, adultery was a sin committed by a person whose marriage had been consummated. That's adultery. When two people had gone through the betrothal period and they had finished it and everything had worked well and they came to the conclusion of that and they got married, if they were unfaithful after the consummation, that was considered by the Jewish matter, law, minds, scholars, that was adultery. Adultery could not be committed by somebody who has simply been betrothed. Adultery could not be committed by them. Consequently, a penalty for adultery was death. Leviticus chapter number 20 and verse number 10. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteresses, shall surely be put to death. Let me tell you something. If you got a divorce over adultery, you were wrong. In the law of the Jews, the guilty parties should have been killed. So if you're going to hold to the idea that you want to take Jewish law, then you've got to take the whole ten yards and you'd have to kill every guilty party in adultery. And that's by the Jewish law, Leviticus chapter number 20. Let me say this then. That being the case, so back to Matthew chapter 19, verse number 9, our Lord was not talking about adultery, was He? He didn't say adultery in 19.9. He said, except it be for fornication. What did he mean by fornication? Very simply, he's talking about and speaking about in the context of this, and I don't know any other way to put it than to translate it, this Henry edition. It would simply say, except it be for fornication during a betrothal period. <laughs> Under those conditions, then you can write a bill of divorcement, and it would have been accepted. You say, I don't believe that. Then you don't believe the story about Joseph and Mary. You say, well, I do. Then you look at Matthew chapter 1, and you read with me, please, what the passage says. Matthew chapter number 1, verse number 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 18 says, And in Ramah was there a voice, excuse me, this is chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 18 says, 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary, now watch the word, was a spouse to Joseph before, you ought to underline, point arrows to, and draw stars by the word before. They came together, she was found with a child of the Holy Ghost, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to do what? Divorce her. He had every right to. Why? Because the law allowed him to under the betrothal law. He could divorce her because the marriage was not consummated. She was found with child. And here he comes along and says, Oh, this is horrible. This is a bad situation. What in the world are we going to do? She's with child and we have not consummated this relationship. So what can I do? He fully, quickly, immediately, without any kind of research says, I know exactly what I can do. The law allows under the betrothal period to divorce her and they won't stone her. Why? Because we're not consummated marriage. If we had been married and she had done this, they would kill her. But we're in a betrothal period, so... All I have to do is write her a bill of divorcement. And it's a done deal. It's over. And now, you know the thing that you and I hold so sacred? The virgin birth of the Lord Jesus? It's an amazing thing that in your Bible, in John chapter 8, verse number 41, people heard about what happened to Mary. And they said, oh, we've heard that Mary... That uh, woman that was a spouse to Joseph to be married to it. We have heard that she's going to have a child. And the enemies of Christ kept up on those kind of things. You know, that's the way it is with a rumor mill. If you've got an enemy, I'll be sure they'll find out any rumor bad about you. Bank on it. And so they heard that Jesus Christ was born of a woman who had a sexual relationship during a betrothal period. And John 8, 41, here's what those enemies said. They said, talking to Christ now, these are his enemies talking to him, ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, or to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. You see what they're saying? We weren't born of an unconsummated marriage. They were saying, hey, you were born in an unconsummated marriage. You are an illegitimate child. Your parents were not even married. They were in a betrothal period. Even his enemies testified to the truth of what the Scriptures teach. And they were simply saying that, don't you come talk to us about this matter. You were born in a, a state of fornication. We call it virgin birth. Because we know that the Holy Spirit was the Father of the Lord Jesus. Now, one final word, and I close with this. Not only is the original principle the ongoing problem, but what I call an obvious position. Back to Matthew chapter 9, 19. And quote, closing quickly. Listen carefully, please. Verse number 10 and 11. He says, His disciples then say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. Verse number 10. His disciples got the message. They understood it. They said, you mean, you mean after we get married, you mean after we are consummate our marriage and, and we don't like our wives anymore, we can't just dump them for any cause? I said, you got it. Well, huh? it's better for a man not to even marry. Because you must remember, the Jews thought of a woman as a possession. She was listed on an ownership manual possessional list. Put right at the top. Donkey, 
house, pots, wife. That's right. You know that historically. She was listed among the assets of a man. And so he was saying, you mean to tell me, then if that's the case, now these men says, I'm not going to get married. Because if you can't get rid of her, if you can't, I'm not going to do that. Isn't that amazing that even in a loose society like that, they are even stricter than we are in our country because now you don't even have to have a reason. You can just walk down there and say, ah, we're incompatible. How do you spell that? I don't know, but that's what we are. And they just stamp that thing, run you through like cattle and give you a shot of, of insensitive feeling the whole process and a few years later you walk away and hope everything works out. And it never does. Let me say it to you and make it as clear and plain as I can. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying this. I do not believe that divorce is for us. Period. I don't think you can find me one shred of truth in the Bible anywhere where divorce was ever designed by God in the first place and secondly, that it was ever intended for people to do that. Not one. I don't believe for a second. We say, why did Moses do it? Because the sinful hearts. Now, if you want to live on such a low standard and say, okay, I'm just going to, i got a sinful heart, okay? If that's the way you operate, then don't do that. But don't expect God's blessing because it's not guaranteed. Nowhere in your Bible does it say, oh, yes, if you get a divorce, and God will bless you. Let me tell you something. It says if you've got a hard heart and you won't submit to the overall big picture of God and you want to run your own ship, then you go right ahead. But I'll guarantee you one thing. It's like a drunk. You're just multiplying your problems. You're just multiplying your problems. And see, our society listens to say, oh, well, aren't that, isn't that awfully hard about What about all these families? You can't go through all the scenarios of all the problems and say, well, well, what about this case? And what about that case? You have to look at one source and say, what does God say? What does God say? That's the issue here. And what's happened in our country, it has been one of those guilt trips laid on everybody. And so nobody will get up and say, God does not sanction divorce. And it's time in our churches that we had somebody stand up and say, no more. No more. And I say this to you this morning. I think there's some men who ought not be married because they don't know how to treat a woman. I think there's some men who ought not be married because they don't know how to lead their own life, let alone a wife. I think there's some men who ought not have wives because they don't know how to have and rear children. Let me say, I don't think it's just your ideal of your sex drive that determines whether you ought to be married or not. And I submit this to you. That in this country, we've got to quit looking for short-term answers and we've got to begin to look at what God says and understand if you go against the grain of what He says, you are going to create chaos. And I don't know of anything that's created so much chaos in this country as the freelance, free-sweeping, easy-go-lucky divorce rate. And let me tell you something. It's got to stop, and it's got to stop now. And let me exhort the New Life Baptist Church family that you not encourage divorce. You not exhort people to divorce. You simply let the chips fall where they will about life. Now, if I, I am not believing for a second that a woman stays in the house where she gets beat up and she gets whipped around and slapped and knocked and kicked. But I'm not telling you this morning, go out and divorce the guy. I'm telling for safety purposes, you do what you have to do to protect yourself. But I do not believe for one second that it's just up for grabs to go out and get a divorce and get the gavel sound on the court's desk and a judge's decree and it's over with. I don't believe that. There's got to be a biblical answer and there's got to be a biblical direction and I believe God gave one. I believe it's just a big pill and we don't like to swallow big pills. It goes against everything in us. It goes against all the liberties we've enjoyed and it goes against all the laws that our land has written. You say, well, what about this problem, preacher? What if I caught myself in a situation and, and I was divorced and, and then I'm, I'm remarried and, and I'm at this point right now. Now, what do I do to be right? Do I divorce this wife and go back to that first point? No, 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 no. You see, there's a passage and I don't have time to read it. 
in 1 Corinthians 7, you just read the passage 16 through 24 and remember this phrase, wherein he is called, therein abide. Wherever you got saved, that's where you ought to park your car, relationship-wise, and stick. Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, wherein you are called, therein abide. He knew you were going to have that problem, and God in his wisdom answered. He said, no, sir, you can't go back and burn up this relationship just to get that one back there restored. Wherever it was that you got saved, he said, you park right there, and you establish that relationship and make sure it stays, and it sticks. That's what he said. Simple answer. The only process is we don't like it always, and we say, I believe I've got, got a reason. I believe I've got an excuse. And you say, okay, what about it? I am divorced. Where do I go from here? Let me tell you something. I submit to you that you need to seek God's face before you ever remarry. Now, here's the catch. Someone told me not long ago who was divorced. His words were exacting this. He was divorced. His attitude was that he, he wished he'd done things differently. He didn't. He was divorced. He remarried. And he said this, and I'm, I'm, I'm still stunned by it. He said, quote, The likelihood of my marriage lasting another four years is about as likely as me walking on the moon. Christian. And I asked him the obvious question. Why? He said, I don't know why. He said, it just seems like when one breaks down, one marriage breaks down, to go back and make another one work, it's almost like fixing a car that you still are missing parts to. I can't ever seem to get it to work right. Now, I'm not saying that there have been people divorced and remarried and things flying like an eagle. You may be, and if you are, let me tell you something. You ought not pat yourself on the back or pat Jim Dobson on the back or somebody else who gave you marital counseling. You ought to thank the grace of God because that's the only thing that flies your eagle wings. That's the only thing. But if you're having those difficulties, let me tell you this. It may be God's will for you to step back and take a good long look at the thing. And maybe it is that God's trying to teach you something. You see, if you got your attention more on finding a mate than you have in finding a relationship, a deep and ongoing and dynamic relationship in Christ, then I don't think you need to get married yet. Until you find yourself that you and Christ could live alone, it may not be time for you to marry anybody. And my heart's for you this morning. Until Christ satisfies everything in your life, I don't think a woman will satisfy you. But when you find Christ to be everything, then you won't set such a high standard for the woman that you marry. Because you know in Christ exactly what He brings into your life. He'll do so for His glory and for your good. I think He wants us to trust Him explicitly. I think He wants us to so trust Him with our relationships that no matter how much we feel that we just can't live with this aloneness, that if... God says to you something, let me say it, let me, let me draw near to you and you learn to love me the way I love you. I'm simply saying to you that the world will say, oh no, you can't do that, you've got to go out and get married. I went up to the, one of the men of our church a week or so ago and I said to him, I said to them, yeah, I don't want you to feel like you're pressed into marriage because I feel like the people of our church sometimes force people who are not married into it. We almost assume it. We almost expect it. We almost demand it. And it's time we step back and say, look, God deals with His servants individually, not collectively. And you and I need to do the very same thing. Let me say one thing for sure. A Chinese proverb that I guess my parents read to me a long time ago. At least they put it in a book and left it on a table to be read. It said, in a broken nest, there are a few whole eggs. 
And that thing has haunted me. I don't think I have ever in my entire life met with, talked with, and shared so much with so many people who are broken. And many of them because of family problems. And I'm telling you something that the only person in all the world who can make broken people whole is a real, living, thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not marriage counseling. It's not a pastor. It's not a, it's not a friend. It is Jesus Christ. And until Jesus Christ becomes the centerpiece of our own heart, He'll never become the centerpiece of our homes. And I say to you this morning, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, then this is the place to start. You say, oh, but I've made so many mistakes and so many failures in my own life, my own marriage, way back there. That may be true. But the fact of the matter is, you need to start today being right. Start where you are. Can't do anything about the past. If it's sin, you need to confess it and turn from it. But you can't change it. But Christ can change your future by changing your heart. If you don't know Christ, come this morning to trust Him as Savior and Lord. If you do know Him and God's dealt with your heart about some area of life that you need to deal with this morning, let us help you. We'd be honored to do so. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word. Though it's not an easy thing to say and teach and preach, it is, I believe, the truth. And therefore, Father, I pray that you'll take it now and apply it to our hearts in a real and genuine way and help every person in this room to receive it in the spirit with which we've given it. May it be a help and a blessing to them and may, it, may their perspective be your perspective. And Father, I pray for those who are in our midst right now who have never trusted you as their Savior and the Lord, I pray that you'll bring them to salvation. For Christians here this morning to whom you've ministered, I pray, Father, deal with them according to your grace and give them the direction that they need for their lives. Folks in our building who have in the past been divorced, I pray give them special encouragement and special grace and special direction and help them to be patient to wait upon you. And God, help them, I pray, to seek your face and come to know you better every single day of their lives. And I pray that we come to understand that the ways of this world are not the ways of the Word of God. And help us to discern the difference and help us not to be ashamed or backward or in the least bit intimidated to stand up and speak the mind of God. So bless these truths to our hearts and may they make a difference for generations to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand please? 282 as we sing. If God has spoken to your heart this morning and you need to do business with Him, we invite you to come. If you need to know Christ as Savior, someone will take you to a side room and show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved. Whatever your need is, I believe Christ has an answer and He does an excellent job of making broken people whole. If that's your case this morning, why don't you commit your life to Him. As we sing, you come please together. Just as I am to God has spoken to your heart. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? take these things and 
and speak to our hearts and give us direction and wisdom. And I hope that you'll take them and share them with people. And don't let the truth die here, but rather share it again and plant it and may bring forth more fruit. Hope you'll be with us again this evening for the service. Pray you will speak to our hearts from God's Word. If you come praying and expecting that, I believe the Lord will do it. So join us this evening at 6 o'clock for the service or choir at 5 o'clock for that practice. Quarter family will be sharing with us some music this evening. So I hope you'll come and share it in that time too. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for these moments together. Thank you for the truth of your Word. And I pray that you'd give us a holy boldness to speak it. And help us, I pray, to realize that in every case, when we do what you say and we obey your word, we are the better for it. And help us to realize that there's great success to them that trust you and obey and follow out and lead your life into their own. And Father, I pray today that you may take the things that we've shared and I pray that they'll become realities in our church. Help us to hate divorce just like you hate it. And help us, I pray, to encourage those who have been to, to seek your face and to, to get to know you in the most intimate of ways. And may the relationship, Father, I pray there be right first before there ever is any other further interest, concern, or care. So, Father, I pray that you'll meet every need of every life and bring honor and glory to yourself through each of our lives. Bless the service tonight and meet with us again in this place. And I pray, Father, that you would guide and direct us through the afternoon. Get the folks who will be traveling, give them safety. And pray, Father, that you'll refresh their bodies and bring them again to the service tonight. Guide us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.